Today on The Black Goat, we discuss a field experiment in Iraq that tests whether playing soccer together can reduce prejudice between Christians and Muslims, and a letter about applying to PhD programs during COVID. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Black Goat. My name is Sanjay Srivastava. I'm here, as always, with Alexa Tullet and Samin Vizier. And Alexa, the last time we recorded, you were up in Vermont. You're now mm-hmm. back home. But uh, you, uh, you got there sort of to, to get away. Did you, uh, do you feel like you actually got away from, from things when you were up there? Yeah, definitely. I'd never been to Vermont before. Um, And I haven't spent much time in sort of like that area of the country. Um, And so I went to visit my um, girlfriend's family and they are like really outdoorsy. And so we did a lot of like, we went for bike rides and we went for hikes and we went swimming and they live near like a, a gorge, I guess. So you could like go for a run and see the mountains. And then afterwards you could like go for a swim in the river. It was like really lovely. Um, but we had like, uh, we had a few cool animal encounters and I think that I'm like generally not, I like, it's hard to, I'm not anti-animal. It's just that I'm not like as enthusiastic about animals as other people are, but there were some like really cool moments. So we were driving and we saw, um, a black bear and her, a mama black bear and her cub cross the road. Um, and we were able to stop and we realized that there were two other cubs on the other side of the road. So we were like, we camped out and like waited and eventually the, the mom and her cub crossed the road to go to the other side. So we got like a really good look at them. Um, and I don't think I've ever seen a bear in my life. Um, so that was like really cool. It was like surreal to see that they like exist in the real world. Um, and maybe the other cool... We saw a heron, which I like, I'm kind of into herons, um, uh, up like pretty up close in the river. Um, and then uh, we also went to um, like a lake where there were a lot of loons. Um, and M- Megan's dad was like telling me about how beautiful the sound of the loons is. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a bird, it makes a sound, that's cool. <laughs> but it was really beautiful. And that we saw these two loons that did like a, like a dance together where they would like go under the water and then they would come up further away in the same spot. And then they would just sort of like peck at each other's like feathers. And then they would go underwater again and then come up in a different spot together. Um, it was pretty magical. I was pretty impressed with the animals. I have a theory that that liking of animals is a two-factor thing, and there's birds, and then there's all other animals, (laughs) and they're negatively correlated. That's that's some very Alexa animal experiences, because don't don't you have, you have a tattoo of a heron, right? Yeah, I do. And then you're Canadian, and the loon is on the Canadian national currency. True story. The loony. So, yeah, so... Do you have any, like, personal relationships to bear kind of stuff? Is that... uh, no, nothing, oh, okay. nothing at all unique. Okay. Yeah. Well, two out of. Three. I had a teddy bear when I was a kid, so yeah, yeah. I have a strong eh, personal works. connection. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I've been finding that um, getting getting out in nature is like more. I'm not a huge outdoors person. I do enjoy, you know, going hiking every once in a while or whatever. But like, ever since lockdown and pandemic stuff because I'm in my house staring at a screen that's a foot and a half away from my face for like 12 hours a day, pretty much. I just opportunities to like, and, and we haven't been able to travel by plane either. So we've, mm-hmm. we've taken a couple like trips within driving distance. Um, and yeah, I just, uh, you know, nature seems more important. We had a, a, we took a trip to Crater Lake National Park about a week and a half ago, which was awesome and uh we we had had all these big plans because my son just finished fourth grade and there's this thing where the national park service gives every fourth grader like a year-long pass to get into parks for free so we had all these plans before the pandemic of like we're gonna go to glacier and we're gonna maybe go to yosemite and but then we you know that stuff didn't happen but we went to crater lake and it it was 
really cool. I had been there once before, like 15 years ago, and uh, my wife and kid had not been before, and it was awesome. I don't know if, if you've ever seen pictures of it or if you've ever been, it's like this unreal shade of blue. It's just like, and that's kind of what it is. So like, you know how some national parks you go and there's like a million different things to do and crater, there's definitely stuff to do, but the main thing that people do is there's like a 30 mile drive around the rim of the lake and people drive around it and look at the lake. <laughs> they just like get out at different lookouts and look at the lake from different angles and whatever and that's kind of the thing and uh um it's pretty awesome we did actually the one thing that's a little bit more adventurous is you can there's because the i don't know if you ever seen pictures but it's like it's it's in a crater and so the entire way around like it's just surrounded by cliffs because it's a volcanic crater um there's one place where you can hike down and i had not done that before and so we hiked down you can actually swim in crater lake and so that was pretty cool Wow. I didn't actually go swimming because I'm a wimp and the water's really cold, but I hiked down and stuck my toes in. And the lake is really deep, right? Yes, it's, I think it's the deepest freshwater lake maybe in in America and maybe in the world. It's like ridiculously deep. Um, and yeah, and it's still active. So there's an island called Wizard Island, which is just an awesome name, but it's like a cinder cone. And apparently it's been like growing because it'll like blow cinders every once in a while or something yeah it's a little eerie <laughs> yeah it is yeah but it was also it was it was packed like all like people are i think i think that's been happening all over like I, we're going camping this weekend and it's really hard to get i mean it's always hard to get a camping reservation in oregon but it's really hard this mm -hmm. year because i think everybody's just like doing outdoor stuff to to just try to have something to do yeah. Samina, I want to go back to your animal theory. Does that mean <laughs> that you like non-birds and Alex likes birds? Yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's also like you, like not exactly anti-animal. <laughs> birds are growing on me though. Like when I focus on the fleshy part and think of them as animals. That's like the other weirdest animals. thing you've ever said. <laughs> <laughs> when they're flying I like they just don't strike me as I don't know they're just so different than other animals so how do you weird. feel about like lizards I like lizards like I guess with most animals except like some insects um I get like a cute reaction even mm -hmm. like ones that you wouldn't think of as cute I still get that reaction but birds I you I used to not at all and now like like now sometimes I'll sit in front of my window for long enough that I start to see them as beings mm -hmm. with like interesting behaviors and stuff. But the, yeah. I guess flying is just such a boring behavior. I don't know. What? That's like literally <laughs> the behavior that people choose when they're like, if you could be, you could do anything in the world. Like, yeah. you know, people like say they, they would fly. Yeah, I have, but it's I mean, more interesting to watch like, birds doing other things. Like the dance thing sounds cool. Yeah, the dance thing was really cool. Yeah. We have wild turkeys. We have wild turkeys in in our area, and and so we. I, I know what you mean about the cute thing, um, but we get uh, like when when the little baby wild turkeys have just hatched, they're they're pretty cute. Then they don't stay cute for long. Yeah. And, you know, adult wild turkeys are pretty freaking they're ugly, jerks. if mm -hmm. I can say so. Yeah, yeah they're. They, I mean, they're they 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 mostly leave us. I mean, they leave us alone, and so whatever. But yeah, they are. They're not known for being pleasant animals either, but uh, um, yeah, with the little baby wild turkeys, like following their moms around, you know, they'll be like walking through our backyard or down our street. That's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. That's cute. Yeah. I actually almost saw a fight between a wild turkey and a raccoon in our backyard. Oh yeah, they, they were like, there was a wild turkey or like a couple of wild turkeys walking around and there was like a raccoon, which they come out in the daytime every once in a while, which is like not, normal but I, I don't mm -hmm. know why but anyway so they were both back there and at one point like I think the raccoon started making like some hissing noise and the turkey like kind of took a swipe at it and the raccoon swiped back and then they both sort of ran to their corners but I was mm -hmm. like am I gonna see a fight between a raccoon and a turkey <laughs> like that, that, is, that well is in Davis they attack dogs like if you walk your dog while there are wild turkeys roaming around downtown you have to be careful oh, wow. fights with dogs whoa wow. weird that is super weird yeah 
Yeah. Well, should we do our letter? Are you guys ready to, to read the letter? Yep. Yeah. Okay, cool. Okay. Uh, dear Sanjay, Alexa, and Samin, I'm excited to start my PhD in experimental psychology this fall. However, I can't help but wonder how this pandemic might affect other young researchers hoping to apply to PhD programs this 2020-2021 cycle. I've seen posts on Reddit listing various schools and departments that have halted admissions for PhD programs in order to, as one university puts it, ensure that the department has resources to adequately support its students during the COVID-19 pandemic. What advice would you have for young researchers hoping to apply to PhD programs this cycle? Personally, my goal is to become a professor someday. I worry that the academic job market will, be, will still be recovering five or six new years from now uh, when I start looking for a postdoc and professor positions. The pandemic-induced recession has caused a hiring freeze at many universities, and I guess I'm worried that this will cause a backlog of jobless PhD grads competing for a small number of positions for years to come. Is this a reasonable worry to have? Do you think that the realities of this pandemic will continue to impact universities' research funding and hiring practices five to 10 years in the future? Sincerely, a worried aspiring psychologist that would love to hear your thoughts. Um, so there are a few different parts to this question. Um, and the part that I feel most confident answering is the question, is this a reasonable worry to have? And I think it probably most certainly is a reasonable worry to have um, that there will be like some impact uh, for people who are applying for jobs like four or five years from now. Um, I mean, honestly, actually, it's 2020. There were just there was just a fire tornado in California. I think literally every worry is a reasonable worry right now. So right. Uh, yes, I'm not going to beat up on somebody for like, is this a reasonable? Worry? It's just like. Doesn't matter what it is. Yes, it's a reasonable worry. Anything could happen. Right. That doesn't um, mean it's right. That just means like don't don't feel bad about worrying about this. Yeah, exactly. The things that we couldn't have imagined worrying about are things we should have worried about, I suppose. Yes, like fire tornadoes. Right. Sorry, I'm a little obsessed with the fire tornadoes. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I'll try not to keep bringing them up two or three <laughs> more times this episode. You guys can like you know keep track of me. Anyway, sorry. Go on, Alexa. Um. Yeah, so I guess my biggest, the, the biggest thing I'm wondering as we try to answer this question is, I think almost certainly people need to worry about um, limitations on uh, positions for PhD programs and grad programs and jobs. So I think those things will be harder to get for the next few years. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's a terrible idea because I think everything will be harder to get. Um, so I don't know if academia will be um, disproportionately negatively affected or negatively affected in the way that um, the entire economy is being negatively affected. Um, I don't know. What do you guys think? Yeah, that's my very, <clears throat> I don't know, pessimistic feeling is that everything will be shit for many years. And... So I, yeah, I don't know. It depends what your alternatives are. If, if you have an appealing alternative where you're pretty confident you can get a position you'd be happy with and the industry is going to be thriving, great. I can't imagine what that alternative is, but um, maybe you could go work for Zoom or something. But other than that, I guess I think I've just, yeah, I think it sucks to be at the beginning of your adulthood and or, and or career trajectory and stuff right now it's just going to be there's a very good chance it'll be terrible no matter what um we don't know for sure maybe it won't be but i think like sanjay said it's very it's perfectly reasonable to be worried it will be but i mm -hmm. i think a phd program has the same pros and cons compared to other tracks as it did before the pandemic like there are some ways in which it's maybe a better place to be during uncertainty right if 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 you enjoy it and have good support at, in your lab and at your university and things like that. So I think which program you pick maybe becomes much more important. Like look at their track record of prioritizing, like some, I see on Twitter, some departments are like giving graduate students extra summer funding or things like that. Like if that's where they're going first to help people deal with the pandemic, that's a good sign. Um, yeah. I So I, I have a, like, what's the, Tra traditional answer, the historical answer, and then I'm gonna kind 
contra- or not contradicted, but I'm going to challenge it, right? So the, I think the historical answer is that this would actually be a good time to mm-hmm. be going to grad school. And I, I, that's, I think, historically during recessions is a time when grad school interest and applications tend to go up because the, you know, the opportunity cost of being in grad school right now is like sitting at home unemployed or underemployed as opposed to when the economy is cooking and you go to grad school and you're not making much money in grad school when you could be out getting an awesome job or whatever. So like the short term opportunity cost uh, actually favors it. And, you know, five to six years is a hell of a long time for the economy and even bad recessions, uh, you know, tend to recover faster than that. Um, I think the the concern about like, oh, jobs, you know, will there be a backlog of people? Typically, I think what's happened in previous economic downturns is like, yeah, there, there might be people backlogged who are getting their PhDs, but there's also a backlog of jobs as universities, you know, universities, a lot of them are having hiring freezes right now. You know, historically, it would have, it would have been not unreasonable to expect that, oh, when this is over, they're going to, you know, start making up uh, hiring and that kind of thing. So that's kind of the historical answer. Now, I think that the way I'm going to challenge that, I guess, is that, um, you know how like, you know, when you see like stock market stuff and they always say you know, past performance is not indicative of future performance. And, and they're trying to say, and, you know, they're trying to, to like say on the one hand, like, don't believe, like, don't hold us accountable for the, saying this is a trend you can extrapolate into the future. But of course, the reason they're trying to sell you on the stock or the mutual fund or whatever is to because they want you to think it's worth it for your future. And I just feel like there are, I'm less concerned about, well, okay, there's, I'm not so concerned about just COVID on its own. I'm more worried about long-term stuff that was happening, long-term trends in higher education that were happening already, have been happening already for a decade. Um, Public disinvestment. Yeah, if we're talking about the United States, public disinvestment in higher education and all of the you know, the, the shift towards adjunct contingent labor, um, fewer tenure track jobs. I don't, and then I think the pandemic has exacerbated those to where, you know, you're, you're seeing universities making awful decisions because they have invested in sports arenas and dormitories and these other auxiliary services while they're cutting core education. In the United States, again, um, I'm, you know, I, I can speak less effectively about other parts of the world, but uh, so that that's been a, a long-term trend, and I think the it's it, to me it's an open question. Like it can't. I don't think academia can keep going the direction it's going. I think like. I mean, who knows, like (laughs) there's always creative ways that things can get worse, right? Maybe I'm just not imagining it. It feels like one possibility is it just might bottom out and, uh, um, you know, maybe just things kind of stay the way they are. I don't think that's super likely. There could be a wave of closures and consolidations of universities shutting down, or there could be the optimistic view, you know, public a public spirit of reinvesting in higher education, recognition that, you know, this is something worth supporting again. Um, I would love that to be the case, but uh, yeah, anyway, so so I think that the reasons that I would be worried if I were this person are not so much pandemic related as just like the direction academia and the direction tenure track jobs in the United States have been going um, and I think to some extent that probably impacts the rest of the world, I, but I just know less about Canada, Europe, Australia, you know, Asia, Africa, et cetera. Um, but anyway, yeah. Uh, so, so, I mean, I, I think if you were, if I was starting grad school now, I would very seriously, like, I think it's still maybe worth doing, but I would very seriously be doing more than people historically have done to keep my options open to like be, you know, be in a field that I think I can transfer to some something outside of academia and to be developing those skills. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, there was one other thing in this letter that I wanted to touch on, which is the letter writer mentions um, one university saying that uh, they want to ensure that the department has resources to adequately support its students during the COVID-19 pandemic. 
And that to me sounds like a very, um, like an upfront and uh, like desirable strategy for a university to take that grad programs don't always take. Um, so I think that sometimes grad programs don't, aren't completely upfront about the limitations on funding. Um, sometimes grad programs will take students without funding, which I mean, if you're transparent about it, I guess the ethics of that are debatable. Um, and yeah, I think that that probably the ethical thing to do as a grad program right now um, with the uncertainty in funding is to cut back on taking grad students, unfortunately. Well, unfortunately, maybe. Unfortunately, if it means you don't get a spot that you wanted. Yeah, I think if they're actually doing that, I, I had the same reaction to that. I was like, that's that's actually a sign of being responsible. I mean, that could just be a thing they're saying to make it sound good. So, you know, I would, as you're, you know, making inquiries, interviewing, et cetera, I would be asking like, do you guarantee funding, mm -hmm. you know, et cetera, et cetera. Are you going to be funding everyone in your incoming class through their dissertation, blah, blah, blah. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I agree. Like, I think, because yeah, there, I think psychology is, it's somewhat unusual to have sort of like, we admit more students than we fund and we make them compete and weed them out. But there mm -hmm. are other academic fields where that's more normal. And mm -hmm. who knows, like, I, I don't think psych I don't I haven't seen any signs that psychology is gonna go that way. But it would suck if if people suddenly started deciding that's a good idea i think that's a terrible way to yeah. to run things and even if it's not like um as extreme as what you're describing sanjay at ua um we fund people for four years which is often too short of an amount of time so many people take five years or even six years um and then that's when the funding is like not guaranteed and when sometimes actually like decisions have to be made about who gets funding. So even though, you know, it's like presented as a fully funded program and I don't think that's lying, um, it does leave many people in the lurch if they take five years, which is common. And often summer funding isn't guaranteed, which right. isn't really realistically, people can't just stop paying rent in the summers, not have health insurance in the summer or whatever. Yeah. So yeah, I think fully funded is, you have to read the fine print. Right. Yeah, I have really mixed feelings about, I think also my impression is that universities haven't accepted how big the hit is going to be. Mm -hmm. And so I think guarantees mean very little right now. Yeah. Um, my guess is that within a year, a lot of universities are going to have to go back on things they promised people. It's weird because in Australia that's happening already. So they're, they're firing people, they're freezing research funds things like that, that I haven't heard about very much in the US. And I don't really understand why it would be different or better in the US than mm -hmm. in Australia. I'm sure there are some reasons why it might be that I, I don't know a lot of the politics and economics and stuff of universities in the two countries. But mm -hmm. my naive sense is that if it's happening here, it's going to happen there. And American universities are coasting on something, but they're going to crash. Mm -hmm. But so are other industries. So I'm not sure. Again, I don't know that like you're better off working in a different industry than accepting a, a PhD offer. Um, but I, either way, I would probably take any promise with a grain of salt. Yeah. Well, I, I said like ask if they guarantee funding. Uh, and I should clarify that almost I think almost no program will actually say we guarantee. They'll they'll use some kind of language that has an out. So don't be freaked out if if you see that. Um, and I think it's for just the reasons you were just saying, Samin, that like, yeah, they, they want to have an escape valve if, if things go sour. Um, and yeah, like I, I saw during the, the, the Great Recession a decade ago at, at U of O, like there was a lot of pressure. They didn't actually like, I don't think we pulled funding from anybody that I know of in my department, but they're, you know, in the sense that like, I, I may, that may have happened, but I don't think so. But I think there, there was a lot of pressure to like get people done. And they were basically saying like, yes, we've traditionally funded people this far. 
beyond what we tell people we're committing to and we're not going to be able to do that. So start, you know, <laughs> start finishing your dissertation, you know, start moving through the process now. And we've gotten some, like nobody officially has said that this time around yet, but, you know, we've gotten some indications that like that could be happening and, and, you know, um, or that, that, that is a possibility someday. And, and, you know, so like, don't dilly dally on your degree, that kind of thing. I'm not super worried yet, but it's always a possibility. It's so shocking to me that most people in the U.S. I know aren't worried. Like, I just don't see how American universities are going to get through this without furloughs and cutbacks and research funds and things. Well, I don't it's, know. Maybe I'm. It, I mean, there are. So I think you know, we we U of O has a pay cut plan now. We have a union, so the union had to the the administration, and the union had to negotiate it, but they agreed on a pay cut plan. So I think stuff like that is starting to happen. Um, I do think a lot of people are worried about those structural factors. I think it's just like, it's almost like it's, it's such a large and unknown thing that it's really, it's, all, it's hard to be worried about it because you don't know exactly what to worry about. It's like, if, if things collapse, like there, there are lots of scenarios, certainly plenty of people are talking about what that could look like, but it's, it's not like yeah. you know what that's gonna look like. Right. And so does it mean universities close up shop in like large numbers? Does it, and it also, it has very different implications for different parts of higher ed in the US, right? US higher ed is very heterogeneous. And so I think the R1 kind of schools are generally more insulated for a variety of reasons, but you're gonna see, you know, small liberal arts colleges are gonna be pretty threatened. You're probably gonna see, I don't, I don't know if, if, you know, regional comprehensives. I'm not exactly sure where they fit in terms of finances, but, uh, you know, you're, you'll see different effects in different parts of the segment. And, you know, the Harvards and Yales and Princetons are going to be fine. Yeah, um, that's what I'm worried about is yeah. that the prestige inequalities are just going to get so much worse. Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. yeah. if I was, yeah, if I was applying right now, Princeton would look much safer than a big public university. And that uh, it sucks that they're going to get all the best students. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They'll, I mean, they'll, you know, they have the endowments and they'll, the, their finance managers will kick and scream about not spending the endowments and whatever. But yeah, at the end of the day, they just have, act, they don't face an existential threat. It might be a difficult and they'll face cuts and uncomfortable. I certainly wouldn't want to be anywhere facing this if I could avoid it. But yeah, it's not, I don't think it's, nearly the existential threat for the really wealthy privates. And, and for that matter, like I said, I think R1s tend to be a little bit more insulated. Um, yeah. Although It might be a good time to consider PhD programs in other countries if you're in the US and dissatisfied with American things. So I mean, you, you, you almost set yourself mm -hmm. up to get people to apply to you if you just hadn't been bagging on Melbourne like, you know, two minutes ago. Th this would have been like go? the perfect tee up. With, you know, you could have said like, come to Australia, work with well, me. You, you can't get a student visa. You can't fly into the country. <laughs> <laughs> like, my so startup is frozen. And <laughs> what What so, is I the mean, point of having a podcast if we can't leverage it for our own benefit? Yeah. Shouldn't you, you should be come recruiting to, students right now? Yeah, you should come to Alabama. It's like the universal acceptor. You know, like <laughs> we're like so much worse than everywhere else in the world that we'll take people from anywhere. <laughs> I think it's possible in that in like in like six months or something, Australia will be a very appealing place. If I think, you know, like the state of Victoria where Melbourne is, is doing a lot to try to crack down on the outbreak. Universities are reacting maybe too strongly, but they're making cuts or doing things. I mean, if I don't know. I'm not happy with some of the things the universities are doing, but like maybe other universities are going to have to do those things later and they're in denial now. And maybe Australian universities in a year or so will look like more predictable, at least maybe it'll, they'll have taken a big hit, but at least maybe now their current state will be sustainable. I think they're taking the hit in the wrong way and they're cutting in the wrong places, but yeah. yeah. But I mean, what about Europe? Like I think there might be some pretty appealing, pretty, predictable, stable options in Europe. So that's mm -hmm. something I would consider if I was thinking of starting a PhD program. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that, that's, I think there's, you know, yeah, it's a combination of the degree to which institutions are, 
you know, receive government support and funding and the level of competence by which governments are dealing with the pandemic, right? So the U.S. would be, if we had had a good, effective response to the pandemic, our universities would be, in, even with all those structural fact, those other structural factors I mentioned, we'd be in a much better place. It's like, I understand why, even though I don't approve of it and I don't think it's good, I understand why university leaders, like at my university, they're dragging their heels on admitting that they're not going to be able to do things because it's like, they're going to have to lay off a lot of people who work in dorms and housing, you know, food service, recreation, like those are, it's going to, and you know, those are not like people with lucrative jobs. Those are like, you know, decent paying, but like working class, middle-class jobs, it's going to affect the city economy. It's going to have all these repercussions. It's just like, the other option is for a bunch of people to die. And, you know, it's like, the, those are the two choices because our fucking government sucks um, and, you know, hasn't managed the pandemic. Um, and so I think in countries that are doing a better job, they'll, they have more options and they can, you know, they can weather it better than the U.S. can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out over the next couple of years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We avoid partisan politics on this podcast for the say, most part, but like, a lot of stuff. I, uh, I said the government, I didn't name any <laughs> politicians or political parties, but holy fuck. Uh, anyway, okay. Um, we should probably move on. <laughs> <laughs> I, anyone who follows me on Twitter knows exactly how I feel about these things. Um, I'm sure they can guess about you guys too. Um, well, did we, uh, do you guys have any more comments about this letter no okay all right well uh thank you um a worried aspiring psychologist that would love to hear your thoughts uh we always appreciate uh letters um if you want us to read and respond to something we're letters at the that's also just how to reach us if you have comments feedback thoughts um, you can find us on Twitter. We're at BlackGoatPod. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash BlackGoatPod. We're on Instagram, BlackGoatPod. We're everywhere. So uh, you can find us all those places. And, and thank you to our listeners for listening and supporting us. Um, should we, speaking of like, uh, you know, higher education crumbling, maybe we should talk about like monetizing the podcast. Does any, no, <laughs> <laughs> do any gigantic nerds? No, uh, it's weird. Cause you get these like spam emails and, and it's just like, have you actually listened to our podcast? Like random spammer <laughs> who probably wouldn't actually give us any money if, if you knew what you were doing, but mm-hmm. we're just on your mass email list anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, we're not. We're not looking for sponsors or, or advertisers yet. We'll let, we'll let y'all know if we do. <laughs> cool. Well, so for our uh, main topic today, we wanted to talk about a a new article that just came out in the journal Science, and I think the the art the sort of the article itself, the sort of scientific question itself, is a really interesting one. And then I think some of the the sort of, I think it's also going to be a vehicle to talk about sort of meta-scientific kinds of questions about how it's framed and, and sort of how it was done and its place in the literature. But uh, maybe um, uh, I'll just give sort of, should I give kind of a quick summary? Mm-hmm. Um, so this is an article by Salma Musa. I hope I'm saying her name right. Um, and uh, which already it's a sole author. And when you hear about this study, it's a pretty yeah. freaking amazing study. And so, she's a PhD candidate. Yeah. Just, so get off your butt students. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so the title of the article is Building Social Cohesion Between Christians and Muslims Through Soccer in Post-ISIS Iraq. And so what this is, is it's a field experiment Um, testing predictions from the contact hypothesis, this idea that you can reduce prejudice uh, by people having contact with each other. And the specific context for it is it's in northern Iraq in an area that was uh, um, uh, very badly affected by ISIS and by the, the warfare and atrocities of ISIS. 
And so um, in, a, in communities where there are large numbers of Christians, um, I think these are, it didn't exactly say the breakdown. I think these are communities where there are both Christians and Muslims in reasonable numbers. But anyway, these, these communities where there are sort of sizable numbers of Christians in Northern Iraq, um, the researcher went and recruited Christian soccer teams and did a randomized intervention where on some of the teams, uh, they were assigned to have several, so they're all told we're going to, uh, if they agree to be in this, in this study, uh, we're going to be adding players to your team. And in some of them, they added Christian, more Christian players. And in some of them in the treatment condition, they added more, they added up to three, I think, Muslim players to the soccer team. And so this was kind of to see, can this intervention done through sports have effects and so they measured a, set, a number of behaviors um, as outcomes, and they also measured attitudes as outcomes. And kind of the high-level summary, we'll get into the nuances and exceptions and complexities, but sort of the high-level summary is they found effects on behavior outcomes that were directly related to soccer. So players were you know, more likely to say they would nominate a Muslim player for an award or to six months later to be training with Muslims or things like that. Um, there were no, they measured some behavioral outcomes that were unrelated to soccer. They found no effects on those. And um, then they measured attitudes and with the exception of one item, but overall, the, it was pretty much not much effect on attitude measures, which is kind of an interesting, we might get into this, the sort of um, behaviors versus attitudes. There's a, that's a complex literature in, in psychology. Um, but so, yeah, so that was the, the sort of the gist of it. And, and so it, I think one of the reasons, uh, or maybe Samin, you should, since you were the one that suggested we discuss this, do you, you should say a little bit about sort of what it was about this article, aside from the super interesting content, but uh, what it was that uh, you thought was interesting to talk about. Yeah, so I mean, I actually didn't know when I suggested it, that it would have all these qualities. So I'm gonna give my retrospective. <laughs> why I should have chosen it rather than why I actually chose it. But it, to me, it was one of those papers, especially because it's published in a very, very prestigious journal and I bring my biases to that. So like if, if I had gone into it knowing nothing about it, so I did see some praise for it on Twitter from people that biased my judgment to expect good methods and so on. But if I hadn't seen that and I just knew it was in science and it was this like really flashy, hot topic, um, I would have been like, I bet this isn't even pre-registered and I bet it's mm -hmm. all self-reports of behavior and they're calling it behavior, blah, blah. But like one after another in this very understated way, it was like, oh no, we actually, they, it wasn't just would you vote for, it was did you vote for a Muslim player for this award? And it wasn't just would you train with a Muslim player, but six months later, are you currently training with a Muslim player? And then the like non-soccer outcomes were even more difficult to measure behaviors like they gave people a voucher for a restaurant in Mosul which is Muslim dominated city and then they asked the restaurant owners to keep those vouchers with which had identifying numbers that they could link back to participants so they checked whether participants actually went to town and used those vouchers like that's so hard like they didn't just say like would you go and eat at, in, eat at a restaurant in Mosul so it, yeah it was just over and over again like Oh wait, not only did they do the hard thing, but they like kind of undersold it in a way that's so refreshing. Or like maybe it was not underselling, it was just not oversold in the way mm -hmm. I'm used to. Which and makes so it, it seem just... undersold in comparison to everything right. used to right? Yeah. And like the exploratory stuff was very clearly marked as exploratory. And not only that, but then a whole story wasn't built around it. So like there was like some exploratory stuff that was consistent with a more grandiose conclusion that this effect did this treatment did have some effect on global attitudes um but they didn't just cherry pick that and make a story around that and i thought like if i'm so used to seeing papers where that would have been they would have like taken that exploratory result and built the whole paper around that so i was really impressed with the calibration both the calibration of the conclusions to the evidence and the strength of the methods in the first place um just really jumped out at me and then, of course, the research question being so interesting and important was also a big factor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think it, it makes it, you know, the, yeah, like you're saying, you know, there's, there's a way that this could have been done that still would have been, I mean, I think just like, honestly, the, 
the bar for samples is so low that just going to another context is is and and I think there is a way that a lot of that work really does add it's a real contribution, right? But this just went above and beyond um, tracking people for six months, all of that, and 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 so it makes the it makes the conclusions that much stronger because you're not just asking about you know hypothetical behaviors and and so forth. Um, so that that was yeah, that was super impressive and and yeah the way the way it doesn't crow about itself and you know you're totally right so, so i mean we should talk a little bit about like i think the the pre-registration this is a i think this is an example of someone who didn't just do pre-registration to get some kind of like open washing cred for saying that she pre-registered it seems like she really was faithful so for example the the attitude items that were administered to the soccer players in the main part of the experiment her, I gather her hypothesis was about the sort of overall effect on attitudes. And this is very much something that I could imagine a paper in 2007 doing of you administer all these items, you get a significant effect on one item. Mm -hmm. And so you either don't report the other items or you report them, but you give a, you don't, sometimes you say we predicted it would be this one item. Sometimes you just, you, you sort of write as if that is the case without coming out and saying it, right? There was this very much like sort of tell a story around the results you got mm -hmm. approach. Or that, even maybe was, you like in the results section, accurately frame it as one of many and don't make too much of it, but in the abstract and the conclusion, you're like, right. and we found this really promising finding that it right. probably has an effect right. on this aspect of attitudes. Mm -hmm. And that was that was the that, that was the unusually responsible way of doing it once yeah. upon a time. Right. Um right, right. and so but yeah, this this is, you know, if you predict effect on attitudes and you didn't call out this one item as well, you know, this is this is our primary outcome and the others are secondary or whatever and you don't get the effect on the overall index, and when you disaggregate it, you only get an effect on one item, then, you know, you go back to your theory and you say, my theory didn't anticipate this. It's, it might be interesting. We should definitely talk about that. And, and you know, and it does, but uh, um, in a, like you said, in a really careful way. Yeah. There's something to, to me that's like very encouraging about this paper. And then also in some ways discouraging at the same time, the, encouraging thing to me is that if you are um early in your career as a psychologist or even late in your career as a psychologist um this sort of highlights the fact that if you're willing to really like do the hard work that there's just like so much room to address like important questions about human behavior so the contact hypothesis right the idea that um, bringing different groups together can reduce prejudice between those groups is like an old idea and there's tons of research on it, but there's still room to do a really well done pre-registered study like this where you're actually measuring behavior and just shed like a ton of new light on this question that people have been trying to answer for such a long time. And I think that's true of like really the vast majority of interesting questions in social and personality psych. Like I think there are there are maybe a few questions that we've like conclusively answered, but I think there are few and far between. Um, so that part is like really, I found like kind of motivating and exciting. Um, and then at the same time, it's like, it really just like highlights how challenging it is either. I don't know if it's to understand human behavior or to maybe it's to change human behavior, or even human attitudes. Like, um, this seems like a really intuitive way to reduce prejudice. Although I know that, and the authors note that there are reasons to sort of make different competing predictions about how contact might affect prejudice. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's like, it's tough to reduce prejudice. Yeah. I mean, I think a common feeling people have when a study produces null results in this study, it was more complicated than that, but let's oversimplify and say it produces sure, null results yeah. for the broader impacts of on beyond the soccer league uh -huh. um is to feel like oh we didn't learn anything because we tried this intervention and it didn't work so we didn't find an intervention that works and that's true but i think learning that this doesn't work and learning that maybe if you generalize a little bit to like even a pretty intensive intervention over months um doesn't seem to have so far we can't find evidence that it moves around people's more global attitudes or behaviors mm -hmm. 
that's telling us something about humans. Yeah, I mean, I certainly don't think that we didn't learn something from this paper. Yeah, I I wasn't thinking you were saying that. Yeah, yeah, right. And I think that like, um, I think that you can learn, you can be excited about all of the information that we're learning from this paper and still like discouraged by the fact that it's hard to reduce prejudice, I guess. Yeah. Well, they, they do or talk reduce about, prejudice beyond, yeah. um, beyond that context. And they, they, you know, she talks in the paper about how, you know, she was the, the, the sort of strength of the intervention was limited. They could only have, because the local teams didn't want more than a few Muslims for you know, reasons that are very much embedded in the local context and history. Um, I mean, that's another thing that I think is really, uh, I'll come back to that in a second. Anyway, um, so yeah, I think it's reasonable to say, oh, maybe there could have been a stronger version of this intervention that would have had those other effects. So like, that's totally a legit thing to say, but you know, she she's also like, she's not excusing the fact, you know, she's saying like, yep, but at this magnitude, it didn't have these effects in a measurable way. And, and you know, and that's, that's what it is. I think the other thing I started to say is that I think is incredible about this paper is how, you know, how much, it integrates a sort of culturally informed perspective on the local culture into the interpretations, into the design, right? So this is looking at an intervention where the Muslim players were the numerical minority in these Christian teams, but Christians are a persecuted minority in the larger sort of in the country and in the larger social context. Um, that there's this history and, you know, talks about like how, you know, they, they took steps to make sure they didn't accidentally put like ISIS collaborators in the teams. You know, it's just like the, we, we talk all the time about how, in, especially in social psychology, how things are context dependent and, and, you know, that usually devolves into kind of a silly argument about hidden moderators. Um, this is a case where, an informed qualitative understanding of the context informed the design to where, you know, she anticipated these issues and was able to design around them. So they didn't become excuses after the fact. They became, you know, an informed part of the design and an informed part of the interpretation, both what it means and the limitations on what it can't mean. Yeah. And I'm going to kind of um, caricature your, <laughs> your statement, but I, and this came up a bit in the commentary that was published along with it by Betsy levy Pellick and Chelsea Clark. But this idea that it could potentially be a limitation of the study that the number of Muslims on the Christian teams was capped at 25%, I think. I think that's a very post hoc thing. And the way they framed it in, in the paper, the way she framed it was that it was a discussion between the research team and the Muslim players. And the considerations weren't just practical ones. It was also that if you have too many of the dominant or majority group, um, then it could feel threatening and you could have something like reactants. I don't think she used these words, but so I imagine that if it hadn't, if she hadn't made that design design decision, let's say there were no ethical considerations and she could have had more, I still think the 25% would have made sense theoretically. And if she had gone over that and gotten null results, people might have been even more likely to point to that design decision and say, well, that that's why you had too many Muslims on the team. And so it wasn't a positive intergroup experience for the Christians anymore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I think both so, both the article and the commentary point out that the contact hypothesis, the history of that idea, very often people have raised the time, the prospect of reverse effects of, of intergroup context. And so you could imagine a design where that's a, you know, parametrically varied manipulation where you try to see if you get a reversal at some point or something like that. So I, you know, yeah, I think, I think the, the interpretation was, you're right. It, it was sort of, it wasn't just a practical limitation. It was also trying to pick a number that for a combination of practical and sort of culturally informed reasons um, made sense. And theoretically. A priori. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a few specific findings in there that are really interesting. Should we talk about some yes. of those? Mm-hmm. So one, I think that one of you guys pointed out is that uh, there was no effect on attitudes. And then I think this question of like, which matters more to change attitudes or behavior, I think is mm-hmm. a really interesting one. And also, I mean, it's relevant that there were no effects on behaviors outside of the league context. So right. it's, I don't want to like 
we could talk about which is more important to change while acknowledging that actually neither changed except for behaviors in the narrow mm -hmm. context of the league, but it's still an interesting question, I think. Yeah, I, th I mean, there's this, I think there's this folk idea that the way you change things is by changing hearts and minds, right? That you sort of change people's attitudes. And I mean, this is something Betsy Palak, who, who co-authored the commentary, she's been pushing this idea for a long time that that's not the only route to behavior change and maybe not the best one, right? So she does a lot of research with norm-based interventions where you're, you're changing norms and getting mm -hmm. behavior change and reductions in conflict and prejudice. And so I think the, the, this sort of fits with that idea, but it, it's both a folk concept and something that within psychology, there are some people who are more focused on attitude change and then some who are not. And, and um, but that was, I think just, so it both defies some folk wisdom as well as some psychological, both formal or not formal, but both explicit theory as well as just sort of predilections of researchers. If you're an attitude researcher, of course you think, uh, not of course, but if you're an attitude researcher, chances are you think attitudes explain a lot of things. Um, and there's a lot of attitude researchers who probably have that, uh, I don't know what you, prejudice, <laughs> inclination, uh, prior. Attitude. Attitude. Oh, there yeah. we go. Yeah. 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 I don't know. I mean, it also feels like um, attitudes in some ways are a little bit harder to pin down than behaviors. Maybe that's not fair, but um, yeah, I feel like attitudes are so malleable and the like context in which you measure them. I mean, maybe this suggests that attitudes aren't malleable. I don't know. It's complicated, but um, but I think that uh, so in some ways it's like sort of like more concrete to look at behavior than it is to look at attitudes or attitudes feel like more ephemeral. Um, so I thought that was like an interesting. Yeah, I feel like the flip side of that is that behaviors have to be narrow because they're so concrete. And right, so you yeah. could easily be just looking at the wrong behaviors. Whereas attitudes, it's like, you could definitely be looking at attitudes the wrong way or measuring them the wrong way, but still you're like, you can define them in a way that then you can try to measure pretty much the whole breadth of the construct. Whereas with behaviors, it's so impractical. Like at most you can get a handful of behavioral indicators. It's not going to capture the breadth of the construct. Right. So there's pros and cons, I think, to the concreteness of behaviors. Mm -hmm. it's, right. it's, yeah, it's much easier to, you have much more control over picking your level of breadth and specificity with an attitude than you do with behavior. If you want a broad abstract behavioral measure, you have to measure lots and lots of different behaviors and then figure out how to aggregate them and all that. Whereas with attitudes, you can just say, in general, how do you feel about this large thing versus specifically, how do you feel about this specific thing? Um, mm -hmm. I, mean, I was I, I think amazed that the behaviors they chose actually didn't have too many floor ceiling effects. Cause like mm -hmm. you could think it would be hard a priori to pick behaviors that you know not everyone's gonna do or not do. And there was some hint of some maybe getting close to floor ceiling, but not, but most of them seem to have room in both directions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I think another thing that is, and this didn't, I don't know that this came out, I can't remember if this was explicitly discussed in the paper or the commentary, but this, you know, I think certainly some thoughts in this direction, that the, the idea that the, this intervention didn't have these broader, it had long lasting but narrow effects on behavior, it didn't have these sort of out of context effects. Mm -hmm. You know, I think when you step back and you think like, how does social change work, how does, you know, how do societies change? It's not one thing that happens that changes a society forever, right? It's a staged series, like in the real world, just like how, how, do, how do you get cultural change? You know, it's often like a sustained series of events over a period of time. And so you can imagine maybe the answer is not like the, the manipulation needed to be stronger, but it's, it's like, yeah, one event is gonna have one incremental effect and you need another intervention or another thing to happen later on. Like, okay, these players are more willing to have, these Christian players are more willing to have, con you know, interactions with Muslim players in the playing context. So now you need the next intervention that builds on that and tries to get them out of their context. It's like, I think we, we look for these like magic bullet interventions that are gonna fix everything. It's like, are you going to solve prejudice with like yeah. a one time, even, I mean, I, and this is not like a one shot laboratory intervention. This is like right. a, a very complex real world intervention, but it's still one intervention. And so I think we just have these like 
high expectations that social psychology or social science is we're going to find the you know the key that that you know change changes everything it's just people don't work that way all the time yeah and maybe this is sort of beside the point but i also found myself wondering as i was reading the article um that so like the idea of the the contact hypothesis is that we can improve group cohesion right and i think in the um in the prejudice literature within social psychology the uh, group cohesion is just like treated as like a universal positive outcome um this is not my area so i might i might be mischaracterizing things um but i found myself wondering like is better social cohesion always the um, best possible outcome and not not to try to make too close of an analogy to like a context like the one in Iraq that's that's the focus of the study that I don't I'm basically know nothing about um, but in in context like in the US right now where you have groups that have very different levels of there's a huge power dynamic um, and that's like in, instantiated systemically um, is cohesion like the number one goal that we should have right um and i also think about like the idea of people noting um the sort of like political divide in the u.s as this big problem like it's it's the um like that people talk about the country being more divided than it ever has been and implicit in that statement is this idea that like if we can sort of like bring people together things will be better um but there are like compromises and sacrifices that are made with group cohesion that I think might not always be ideal. Um, so like I said, I don't, I don't really mean to comment on this specific case, but I thought that was something that I considered as I was reading the article, this idea that, that group cohesion should be the goal. Yeah. Especially think, because yeah. in this case, they're studying the minoritized group. Right. The exactly. And so to say, Oh, we want to have a more positive attitude towards the group that is, often like that is associated with the group responsible for their oppression right is complicated yeah. mm -hmm. i think that's a that's something that um was alluded to in the the commentary and in, in betsy's twitter thread about this too is that it just i think that what you're talking about alexa and the you know and the issue you raised samin about you know the minor the role of the minoritized group although it's again there's different levels at which one is minoritizing it but anyway that the how it's just a sign of how research reflects the worldview, the assumptions, the values of the researchers, and certainly in an American context where most researchers are white, you know, middle class to affluent ish, you know, the idea that, you know, you like the goal, like what you're saying, Alexa, like the idea that the goal is social cohesion, it's like, well, we want people to like us and mm -hmm. get along with us. And you know, I've, I've heard people say this in the context of the, the protests happening in the United States, people saying like, hey, look, what we want is really simple. We want the police to stop killing us. You know, it's like, it's like the, you know, the hold hands and sing Kumbaya maybe is this, and again, I, I don't want to, I'm certainly not trying to speak for everybody or, or I'm just mm -hmm. articulating a perspective that like, that's the goal. And, and the same thing that, you know, Betsy talked about in, in, on Twitter, and I think she and Chelsea Clark talk about this in the commentary, that oftentimes in prejudice research, the minoritized group is treated as an instrument. They're treated as like the way to fix the prejudices of the majority. Let's, oh, let's drop a few of them into this group and see if they make the white people better, or in this case, the majority Christians on these teams better or whatever, um, rather than you know, centering their perspective, what they would want in the real world, what's the point of doing this intervention from their perspective, et cetera. Um, so I think, you know, that that's another, and, and, you know, the commentary was clear that that is not, that was like a fundamental limitation of this research that wasn't a, a like perspective of the researcher, but this idea I understand that, that because I thought the reason they took Christian teams and and added a few Muslims to them is because in the broader context, the Muslims are the more dominant group. So I think the Muslim right. players on those teams were minoritized, but in the broader context, there's more minoritization happening of yeah. the Christians. I was, uh, something I looked for and I 
couldn't find, although I may have missed it, was like in these towns, what's the minor majority? Are these Christian majority towns? Because um, I, I th yeah, I think I think in this specific study, majority minority is very complicated because right. it's gonna vary. It could, it could yeah. flip and flip again as you broaden the scope. Right. Um, mm -hmm. I think in, in an American context, there's often more consistency between macro and micro. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I wanna go back to one thing you said, Sanjay, like I think what was really cool about this paper, like that point that you, Drew about how maybe we shouldn't expect this kind of intervention to have a broad effect immediately, but maybe it could be scaffolded and then you could build on this narrow effect and so on. I think it's beautiful that the reader was allowed to draw that conclusion for themselves instead of the author telling us that that's what we have to take from it. And I thought she was actually very, very restrained and not making yeah. a big deal out of the narrow thing that maybe it'll mean that if we look longer term, it'll have these beneficial effects and blah, yeah. blah, which I just expect so much papers to do that, that I was just so in awe of her restraint. I'd, I'd like to like quote the abstract actually, just to be like really concrete about how she phrased things, because I think she did such a good job of being calibrated. So she says, the intervention did not substantially affect behaviors in other social contexts, such as patronizing a restaurant in a Muslim dominated Mosul or attending a mixed social event, nor did it yield consistent effects on intergroup attitudes. Although contact can build tolerant behaviors towards peers, with an intervention, building broader social cohesion outside of its outside of it is more challenging. Um, and yeah, that's just like I think a very like uncommon amount of like directness. And yeah, it does definitely read as understated. Although maybe it's just like well calibrated. Um, and I like you, Samin was like especially surprised to see that in the abstract of a paper that's in science, like. Um, so I thought it was a really good example. I was looking yeah. for who the handling editor was because I think they deserve a lot of credit too and the reviewers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I wonder if maybe it was Betsy, maybe Pala, because I think she's an editor at Science. But yeah, I think that's yeah. Right. I, um, I want to I bring up one more thing, which is the, the novelty aspect of this, which we touched on a little bit, but the, the commentary, I think, I, 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 we can, you know, we can talk a little bit about the commentary. I, I saw some of what the commentary was doing was trying to, I think, uh, trying to promote this work in ways that the author did not, um, but that were, we, I, in, my, in my view, at least, some of it was certainly deserved. And I think one of the things, this really stood out to me from the commentary, I'm going to quote it. Um, uh, I mean, you already mentioned this, Alexa, but I want to come back to it. Um, uh, you know, um, you know, this idea that some, okay, some may classify this research as an application of a well-known finding, the contact hypothesis. This would be inaccurate. Previous research has not demonstrated cause and effect with real-world interventions or measured behaviors or otherwise leveraged the most robust research methodologies, which I think includes things like the pre-registration. Mm -hmm. And I think this is, this is a really important point about like we prize novelty so much sometimes that we think it's been done already and either it hasn't something hasn't been done like experiments with real behaviors as outcomes like there's so much work on the contact hypothesis and it's like oh, holy shit i mean i don't know that literature as well as betsy does so i'm gonna <laughs> take uh, betsy and chelsea sorry um so i'm gonna take their their word for it but also it's this concept, I actually used this term on Twitter the other day. One of my grad students, uh, Bradley Hughes, coined this term donut licking studies. And uh, um, the, the idea is like the kid that runs up to the pile of donuts and licks all of them so no one else can have one. And oh, funny. we've so started funny. like some sort of jokingly, like when, when, when we're working on a, an introduction and we find like, Oh, or like a reviewer will say like, you should look at this. Somebody did this before and we look at, it, it's got like seven subjects mm -hmm. per cell and, and, you know, an outcome that doesn't resemble what it's supposed to be and whatever. Um, and so we started jokingly referring to those as donut licking studies. Like somebody did it first, but badly so that you can't say you were first. Of course, That's people great. aren't, I don't know that people are doing that on purpose, but uh, sometimes they are probably most of the time they're not. But th that, you know, this is an example of like, yeah, there's there's a bunch of, I, mean, I don't want to derogate, like, I'm sure there's a lot of good work on the contact hypothesis. I don't want to call all of it donut licking, but it's this idea that we, we're so obsessed with novelty that the large sample, contextually based, 
pre-registered, real behavior, all this stuff study comes along and we're like, eh, didn't we already know that? Mm -hmm. And I thought Betsy Palak and Chelsea Clark, you know, I think rightly saw it as part of their charge in writing this commentary to make sure that people don't dismiss the work on that basis. Yeah. Um, I thought that was a really important point. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just a fact of human nature that if you reward priority and you don't care about the quality standards, you get the priority stamp regardless of how well done the study was, then of course it's going to be a race to the bottom. That's mm-hmm. just, I think any modeler would show that that's an inevitable <laughs> result of that reward system. Mm-hmm. Cool. Do either of you guys have anything else you wanted to bring up about the article? Any closing thoughts? No, I think we hit the stuff that I was into. It makes me feel ashamed about psychology research. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Same. No, we should be proud that there is, uh, this is there not research like this. Was, yeah, but this was done by political scientists. And I think, I worry that that's not a coincidence. I think psychology needs to ask ourselves if we're holding up. I don't know. I just think it's hard to ask a field that does that's this is their standard of like top-notch research that should be published in the most prestigious journal to take our field seriously when you look at the psychology research that's published in very prestigious journals i mean i'm thinking more pnas i read more psychology papers in pnas than in science so that's what's coming to mind now but i think we should care about what we look like compared to what other fields are choosing as the best work that ought to be rewarded the most highly mm-hmm yeah. Well, I, I do think there are some people in psychology doing this. I, I, I also think that the, yeah. the fact that this makes this very long-standing hypothesis, you know, the past research that this stands out against something that's been studied so much does say something about our field. But I also, I'll happily just do what the economists have done to us and by calling psychology behavioral economics. And I'll just, I'm going to call her a psychologist. That's, you yeah, know, we'll, just, just, we'll just adopt. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I do acknowledge this is an N of one and I'm drawing very broad conclusions, but I, it's just, it, it like, it's consistent with the fear I have that actually we are worse than our neighboring fields. Yeah. I, I don't know if that's true. I don't know enough well, about political science. To I'm, I'm declaring that Salma Musa gets an honorary degree in psychology whether <laughs> she wants it or not. <laughs> we're going to claim you as one of our own because we're jealous. Uh, all right. Well, uh, thank you, listeners, for listening to this episode of The Black Goat, and we will talk to you next time. Bye.